This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to P- Professor Vanessa Frigi about her new book, Citizens of Scandal, Journalism, Secrecy, and the Politics of Reckoning in Mexico. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ethan, for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Sure. So as you mentioned, um, I'm a professor in international studies, but I completed my PhD in history at Duke University in 2015. And my interest in, in Mexican history really emerged from where I grew up, which is about an hour north of um, the border between San Ysidro in San, near San Diego and Mexico or Tijuana. Um, so I, I grew up in a place where Spanish was very commonly spoken, where many people I knew had family, um, that either worked or took or went to school across on the other side of the border. Um, there were immigration checkpoints 15 minutes from my house. So all of that really shaped my understanding, not only of, um, Mexico, but also kind of the the relationship between the United States and Mexico and the porosity of our borders and, and cultures and histories, of course. Um, and so as an undergraduate at the University of California, San Diego, I began to explore some of those dynamics I had seen more informally in daily life um, in a more formal context. And that was really um, what got me interested in, in studying Mexican history um, and kind of the intellectual rationale from this for this book really emerged as an undergraduate. I initially was not um, planning to study history. I thought I was going to study Spanish literature. And I was really fascinated by um, all of these journalists and novelists in Latin America who seem to have one foot in the political world in a way that I didn't perceive um, literary people to have in the same way in the United States. So you have someone like Mario Vargas Llosa, who runs for president in Peru, or Carlos Fuentes, who's serving as a political advisor for a Mexican president, or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's advising on, you know, the creation of a, a wire service in Cuba. So all of these dynamics really got me interested in thinking about um, the the, this blurring of genres between journalism, politics, and literature. Um, and in the course of, of doing research and kind of honing in on my topic, I, I focused more on, on journalism, but remained interested in this relationship between 
between journalism and politics. And this was a relationship, um, particularly in the case of Mexico, that's often seen to be a very compromised one, one in which journalists are seen as co-opted by the one-party state, um, you know, notoriously paid bribes um, or having their, their salaries subsidized by various public as- officials. And, um, and this was common knowledge, but what I was finding in the course of doing research was that um, the, what we actually saw in the pages of the press in the 1960s, 70s, and 1980s seemed to challenge this idea in some ways because there actually were scandals that came out that seemingly would be um, threatening to particular party officials. Um, and so what I really wanted to understand with this book or kind of that was the kernel that that drove the initial research was trying to understand um, how it was that these scandals could come out um, despite the the relationship that was seemingly so compromised. I I really appreciate your your note about the the different role that journalists and especially literary figures have played in Latin American history compared to U.S. history. Um, I'm thinking of it just because I was recently talking with um, peers from Venezuela and El Salvador in my department, uh, and they said, "Well, clearly, what the United States needs to do right now to solve its woes is to elect a poet as a president." And I just I chuckled because I can't think of anything less likely in the United States than than a right. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing that initially really perplexed me coming from a U.S. perspective was that someone like Carlos Monsivais, like a chronicler, a very idiosyncratic chronicler, could be um, called upon by um, you know corporate broadcasters to to give his opinion on soccer matches and things like that, like that. Mexican, the Mexican political commentariat could draw on such kind of diverse figures to, to weigh in. Um, and I don't want to overstate their influence. Um, but I think that was, that dynamic was initially what interested me. And I I guess I'd like to hear more from your colleagues about what a poet's platform might be in office, but (laughs) Um, well, we'll come full circle to this um, in chapter eight when we catch up with, or the final chapter when we catch up with Enrique Kraus. Oh yeah. Um, but but before that, just you know, our listeners tend to to have specialties in Latin American history, but maybe they're not super familiar with the second half of the 20th century in Mexico. Um, you situate this uh, the various public scandals that you talk about within the changing socioeconomic and political conditions of Mexico after the 1950s. And so for people not familiar with this history, could you sort of give us a, a general trajectory of Mexico as it begins the 1960s and then how it ends the century? Um, not in super detail, but just to sort of situate us as we're moving chronologically in the chapters. Sure. Yeah. So the book really focuses on the decades between the 1960s and the 1980s. And both popularly and historiographically, I would say these are decades that are associated with democratization in Mexico. Um, compared to Latin, the rest of or much of Latin America, Mexico seemingly had kind of an idiosyncratic process of, of what we might call democratization. I can get more into what I mean by that. But um, famously, it had one ruling party, the, the PRI, that held power, at least the presidency, for 70 years. And um, in this period that I'm looking at, it's it's a moment when the ruling pre is really facing um, different kinds of challenges. So um, we see the rise or proliferation of urban student movements. Um, 
by the 1980s, we see electoral challenges from the right. Um, in the 1970s and also the 1960s, there's the rise of leftist guerrilla groups. Um, and there's also a movement among urban dwellers who are trying to fight for political representation outside of um, traditional party channels. So fighting to be able to organize their labor unions independently, um, fighting for squatters' rights and land and water rights and things of this nature. And all of this was a challenge to how the PRI had managed to balance power previously, which was um, a combination of uh, channeling political demands through these three really broad umbrella organizations and then selectively using um, violence and repression um, when those attempts to channel demands didn't work. And there's been a lot of research on showing that the extent to which the PRI recurred to repression was much um, more substantial than was was previously thought, which is why people have, um, or scholars have started to think about the PRI as a dicta blanda or or, or soft dictatorship. And I think um, what I'm really seeing in my book, which focuses on urban Mexico, is that this balancing act looked very different in cities than it did in the countryside. So um, the PRI we see um, in the cities looked much more kind of beset um, by challenges than it did in the in the countryside, um, or I should say in certain um, rural areas. But um, the other story that I'm tracing as I'm looking at um, the way in which these challenges are arising is that the national press, which had been conventionally kind of most subject to the stranglehold of um, party control, or I should say government control, begins to open up in certain ways. Now, in the book, I really emphasize the contradictions of this opening, and I try to resist in some ways that metaphor or that language, but we are seeing um, a much greater willingness to um, challenge official narratives a willingness among public officials themselves to leak scandalous stories to the press. So we see a lot of the um, internal fighting within the PRI start to find greater expression within the national press. And part of why I think that story is important is because it begins to draw together um, publics and a public sphere that was formerly formerly much more... um, kind of divided or geographically segmented. And you see that ebb and flow in different ways. Um, But what I find is as print media um, begins to to dig into these stories, they become connected and circulate among a lot of different types of media. So radio, tell-all books, comics, um, to the point that even those who had initially leaked the story or investigative reporters who had reported the story really lose control Um, So the story I see by the end of the 1980s is one in which um, there's a a much more robust um, public sphere and and the press itself has a more prominent role in kind of setting, um, uh, articulating challenges to the ruling party. And where the the story closes in the 1980s is is with um, the most significant presidential challenge, or I should say electoral challenge, to the PRI in 1988 with uh, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, um, widespread allegations of fraud, um, a much more mobilized um, and contestatory urban public and citizenry. 
um, but also a country that is in the midst or has um, traversed a lot of um, economic crises and is heading towards another one in 1994. Um, a, a a society that's facing the hot or has faced the hollowing out of its, um, the, uh, social safety net. Um, and so that's kind of where, where we leave off in, in the story at the end of the 1980s. And I have an epilogue that brings us to, um, some of the most kind of famous scandals, uh, of the 1990s to think about some of the legacies of, of what I look at in these, this earlier period. I, I really love that throughout the book, because the chapters are ordered chronologically, essentially, um, you you really feel beginning in the 1960s as some people in the pre year saying, oh, you know, perhaps some things need to change until gradually they, they come to realize all of a sudden, oh, wait, <laughs> a, a whole lot is going wrong, actually. And, and that feeling is really built into the way that these scandals play out. Um, you you begin the introduction or you begin the book with within the introduction by arguing that uh, the, the relationship between media and democracy or the press and democracy is a little bit more complicated than certainly Habermas's notion of a civil society, um, but, but also the way that some historians have tended to write about it. So what, what would you say you're, you're trying to argue here about the relationship between media and democracy, um, which you've already mentioned a little bit in an earlier question? <clears throat> sure. Um, well, I guess just to to give listeners a sense of, of what I'm kind of pushing back against. I think there's been a long-standing liberal emphasis um, on Democrat, or I should say, on press freedom as really being defined by freedom from government control. And kind of the benchmark of press freedom being determined by the extent to which media is able to escape um, you know, political dictates. And then as especially social scientists were looking at transitions of the late 20th century, democratic transitions, um, the adoption of a free press defined by, by this freedom from government was really seen as a key um, piece or a necessary um, condition of these full transitions to democracy. And I, I certainly don't want to say that um, media should be subject to government control, nor that media um, is not important to democracy. But I think the Mexico story really shows us the contradictions um, that are baked into that, those assumptions by looking at how it really played out on the ground. Um, and I think as we go into the chapters, I can get into um, some of the specific examples. But in brief, um, what I argue is that the development of the public sphere in Mexico, urban Mexico, while it has seemed or been explained to be anomalous of the Habermasian public sphere, in fact is just uh, exemplary in my mind of how the public sphere actually operates, which is that it's um, defined by tension. So some of the tensions that I um, elaborate on or highlight are um, kind of tensions between um, self-censorship or censorship and um you know, exposure or tensions between um, representation of particular interests and discrimination. Um, some things that I find are that even in moments when um, the press is beginning to really hold the government to account, it's also silencing um, other types of criticisms and not allowing them into the pages of the press because they are presumed to be not as rational or not as enlightened. And in this case, they came from 
um, lower class or um, I guess I should say lower class individuals or and in particular women. So all of this is to say that I don't think this is even necessarily particularly a Mexico story, but rather a story of how the public sphere itself um, operates, which is that it's defined by, or I should say comprised of um, complex and flawed individuals who have, um, who are never going to have a perfectly free quote unquote um, mode of expression that'll always be defined by their own um, particular individual views, their um, economic kind of obligations, whether it be to advertisers or um, editors, or I should say directors, um, to their sources who are providing their information. So I'm, that's kind of the, the, the picture that I, I try to draw out of the, the public sphere. And in terms of its relationship to democracy, I think if we think about the public sphere as defined by those tensions, then we can also um, understand why it might be that the proliferation of scandals, like I show in the book, didn't necessarily lead to a more representative um, or perfectly accountable system. And part of what I argue is that um, scandals in many ways did reshape the way politics was done in particular parts of Mexico, but at the same time did so in a very unaccountable and um, episodic or unpredictable way. So let's get into the the chapters themselves where you really develop this. Um, In the first chapter, it begins with some scandals that really hit at whether or not the PRI is the fulfillment of the Mexican Revolution or whether or not the Mexican Revolution has really accomplished what some of its central aims were. Um, my, My favorite moment in this chapter is certainly on page 25 when you reveal that the government has a a bulletin that it sends around to many, many, many people uh, in which it basically admits, oh, we know that we're not really (laughs) meeting some of the major objectives of the Mexican Revolution. And so this chapter starts to introduce that idea that you play with throughout the book of a publicly well-known secret. And then how does it transition to a scandal, which is something distinct? Um, So could you tell us a little bit about this first chapter and some of the scandals in the 1960s that start to um, highlight this tension? Sure. Yeah, thank you for that that close reading. Um, So this chapter, like you mentioned, it focuses on the idea of of reckoning with the limits of state-led development and by extension, the Mexican Revolution, um, which the PRI party um, really attached its legitimacy to. So for those, uh, I should say, listeners who aren't as familiar with Mexican history, in brief, the Mexican Revolution um, or the constitution that emerged from the Mexican Revolution focused on um, socioeconomic uplift or promised a particular degree of socioeconomic uplift, um, land redistribution, um, and incorporation of, of different groups that had been formally kind of excluded from political life in Mexico. Um, with the idea that this is going to rectify some of the um, grievances that had led to this very bloody um, war, including kind of um, concentrated ownership of land, inequality, et cetera. So like you said, um, 40 years later, this chapter opens in 1963, and um, we begin to see different media start to think about and really Um, play with the idea, or I should say emphasize the idea of showing how the Mexican revolution had really failed. And um, I guess as a caveat, I should say that there were some publications in the forties and fifties that, 
that made similar arguments, but these were shut down rather quickly, particularly in um, the capital, um, with the exception of the magazine Siempre. But I really focus on the 1960s because this is a point in which a critical mass of publications is starting to deal with this um, question. And like you said, um, what's interesting about it is that no one was surprised to hear that there's continued to be poverty in the countryside or that there continued to be abusive landowners or that the government continued to, to censor this reality. But it was perhaps more surprising or at least more impactful that there was um, kind of a critical mass of, of attention on these issues, which forced a degree of, um, of reckoning or public debate. Um, so I look at two cases in particular. One is um, an investigative series that began in um, a, a well-established newspaper in Merida, in the Yucatan. <clears throat> and part of um, the reason for this is that a lot of the early kind of combative coverage in Mexico really began outside of Mexico City. But I see how um, this series on abuses within the Henneken industry in the Yucatan becomes um, kind of symbolic, or I should say, comes to be representative of um, of broader critiques of the failures of public officials to protect um, indigenous people and um, pe peasants. And I think going back to a point you made earlier, the idea of these series initially was really calling on the government to return to its promises. So kind of invoking the legitimacy of those initial <clears throat> promises and asking the government to simply, or the Puri to simply fulfill um, its earlier, um, it, it's, it's, an, it's, uh, its role, right? Um, and this becomes, this gets picked up in Mexico City um, news outlets and eventually actually the um, key journalist who uncovers this scandal moves himself to Mexico City because he becomes a social pariah in his home state and he begins exploring these issues from um, a new magazine, Sucesos. Um, and then the, the chapter also looks at... Um, Kind of another contradiction within this dynamic, which is that um, the government in a certain moment tries to censor the discussion of or the quote unquote revelation of poverty. And this was famously the case with U.S. anthropologist Oscar Lewis's book, um, Children of Sanchez, which in 1964 was translated into Spanish. And um, it was censored by... Um, the Fondo de Cultura Económica at the behest of a different government agency in 1965. And this was probably a book that very few Mexicans would have read, but because it was censored, it became this object of uh, great debate and outcry in particular because, and the funny thing was that the criticism was that Lewis wasn't saying anything new, that everyone knew he was looking at these tenements um, a, fa uh, a poor urban Mexican family living in tenements in the center of Mexico City. And the arguments against censorship was that we all already knew this. So it became um, kind of a point of contention that the government even felt it necessary to, to censor something that everyone already knew, um, supposedly. So um, I really focus on 
on these debates and and then also kind of the voices that get left out. So one of the members of this fam- family ends up being drawn into to the debate because there are those who claimed that Lewis's tapes um, were fabricated, right? So then um, someone working for the Fondo de Cultura Económica goes to a member of that family and records him saying, basically, I'm Soy Manuel, like, this is my story, Um And it's presented in this very dramatic fashion at a public debate between the censoring official and um, university students and professors. Um, But of course, because he feared for his own safety, that individual couldn't actually attend the event. So the chapter really gets into or tries to get into um, debates about who could really um, disprove narratives of revolutionary progress and some of the tensions that really emerge in these um, in these, in the aftermath of these scandals. And one final point is just that um, though in this case, the readership was really limited to elites, we do see, and I do um, discuss in a few cases, how organizing peasants in the Yucatan pointed to these um, investigations to kind of bolster their, their point, their points as they were um, Martina Merida demanding better wages um, by 1967. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, and you you really pick up with this interplay between reporters, the government, and then the people being reported on that try and play actively in in both public affairs, but also the, the, the storytelling of the scandal. And this is especially true in your next chapter, chapter two, Vehicles of Scandal, which I just found incredibly fascinating and, and prescient to um, the sort of healthcare crisis that we're in in the United States right now, but also in Mexico, um, about people being concerned about a vaccination program. Right. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit about this vaccination concern and how uh, scandal played a role in it? Sure. Yeah. So this chapter picks up in 1974, um, and unlike the previous chapter, which really focused on almost the whole whole decade, um, this chapter really focuses on a scandal that lasted maybe three to four weeks. Um, so it began on the outskirts of Mexico City uh, in Ciudad Nezahualcoyotl. Um, and it began with un- these unsubstantiated accounts that the government was sterilizing poor school children. And it's important to note that every example, at least that I have of this um, rumor, really emphasized that the targets were poor. Um, and this led to well, I should say that um, there there were claims that the government was sterilizing poor school children and that it was doing so under the guise of a routine vaccination. So this led to widespread panic. Um, schools were closed across um, Estado de Mexico, which, which was where this city was located, and then into um, Mexico City as well. And um, this was right before the Christmas holiday when schools were going to close anyway. So Um, the scandal ended up dying down after maybe 10 days. But 
I really dig into the coverage of this because um, what was interesting to me is this is also a moment. It's um, a new president or relatively new president is in office. He's trying to deal with um, the delegitimation and criticism of the ruling party after it shot on um, student protesters in in the famous Tlatelolco massacre. In 1968, he's trying to court um, a particularly urban and middle class, or I should say win back an urban middle class um, group of people. And he does so in part by opening one of the the country's major broadsheets to to be able to express greater criticism. And this was famously the newspaper Excelsior. So what I find interesting is that um, these rumors which I should note as an aside, I resist calling rumors in the text itself, and we can get into why that is later, but um, if you want. But um, for for the sake of intelligibility, I'll just use that term now. These unsubstantiated accounts um, were really articulating very strident criticisms of the government and what it was capable of. And these criticisms were, one, that the government... Um, was carrying out a family planning campaign, which was going on at the time um, and had begin, begun um, two years earlier, that it was taking aim at poor people and that um, essentially the government preferred to um, kill off poor people rather than provide them with the benefits they needed to survive. So these were really, um, really strong criticisms of the government that articulated its its potential for violence um, and its willingness to violate, in particular, girls' and women's bodies um, for its purported progress. Um, And these were drawing on criticisms that were being articulated elsewhere in Latin America. Um, And they were also um, dovetailing with real, or I should say substantiated evidence of sterilization campaigns against, in particular, Black and Brown women in the U.S. South, in Southern California, in Brazil um, and elsewhere. So all of that is to say that these weren't irrational um, fears. They, you could see very real evidence of similar um, campaigns happening elsewhere, though not under the guise of a vaccination. But in any case, what we see um, coming out in the pages of this supposedly critical press was an immediate move to silence these criticisms and to refer to them as um, ignorant, as um, as um, demonstrated or suggested in the title, which is a quote from one of the um, articles, as vehicles of scandal, um, as literally obstacles to progress. And it's a key moment where you see um, the, the liberal press really putting itself on the side of the government and deciding um, that it, that these unsubstantiated accounts needed to be silenced and that these particular voices needed to be silenced. Um, so the chapter really goes through, um, you know, those the debates as they emerged and, and also how we can see how journalists were trying to exercise popular knowledge from, from printed forums, in part as well as a way of defining kind of who was going to be a rational voice in this so-called Democratic opening, which had been declared by by President Luis Echeverria. I really appreciated throughout this chapter the way that you do resist using the word rumor in a, in a very willy-nilly or derogatory way. 
and and how much you you push the reader to say let's understand from the perspective of these people why why this would be such a realistic fear you know re, re, whether or not this was actually true of this particular vaccination campaign um, why why this would provide an opportunity in a moment to to do this sort of activism and pushback against um, government sterilization campaigns um, so I, I really appreciated that tone uh, throughout this chapter. Thank you. Yeah, one reason that I resisted it also is that the the use of the word rumor and gossip um, in the press at this time and elsewhere as well became shorthand for disqualifying particular knowledge. Um, and this is the case even this is the case earlier in Mexico City media as well, where if a politician was you know accused of something by a rival, he would often refer to it as mere gossip as a way of kind of minimizing the accusation and um, describing it as untrue or kind of salacious, right? Or personal attack. So I tried to think about also how ideas of um, truth and legitimate knowledge production are also produced and or perpetuated through the, the designation designators or language we use for describing um, ideas or arguments that may be unsubstantiated or, in other cases are just considered to be dangerous for different, for whatever reason. And that's, and that's a wonderful topic that you developed throughout the book. And we'll get to that, especially once we get to the Mexican chief of police or the, the chief of Mexico city's police. Um, looking to the next um, sequential chapter though, uh, chapter three, muckracking in the oil boom and bust. Um, the wheels start to fall off the car for the pre, or at least that's how I felt as a reader, that this is when they go from managing crises to being in a crisis and just trying to manage. Um, <laughs> could, what could you tell us, or could you tell us a little bit more about what you call muckracking journalism that's starting to emerge in the 1970s and then how it connects with these new oil discoveries at the time? Sure. Yeah. So by the late 1970s, there's uh, the creation of a number of magazines that will be well known to, to people familiar with Mexico, like Proceso, um, that actually are formed out of a moment of censorship of Excelsior, the newspaper I mentioned in the previous chapter. Um, and they become much more combative as a result. And um, these magazines and, and one newspaper are really dedicated to, um, I would say, a uh, a beat, if you want to call it that, of of uncovering state corruption. So, um, the econo- the the oil boom really provides a rich moment um, for this type of journalism because at the end of Echeverria's presidency, there's new oil reserves are discovered, and um, this becomes Mexico had undergone a peso devaluation in in seventy six. So the economy was not doing well, and the, these oil reserves seemingly offered kind of the, the easy resolution to this problem. So the government of López Portillo, this, uh, Echeverria's successor, moves quickly to try to capitalize on these reserves as quickly as possible. Um, talk is, or construction begins on a gas line to take um, gas to, from Mexico to the U.S., and um, there's really like a, almost a euphoria in the press about how these oil reserves are going to save Mexico. And at the same time, um, there's just like a steady pounding of, um, of story after story that's really showing that within the, the state-owned and operated oil company, Pemex, 
um, there is kind of shady dealings going on. And eventually this leads to a big scandal um, that shows that the Pemex director had embezzled uh, an exorbitant amount of money and um, he's he's forced to resign from his position and then um, eventually is actually sent to jail for embezzlement. And at this point, as far as I know, he, this was the most high profile person to be um, kind of convicted of embezzlement and, and actually imprisoned. So there also becomes this kind of new expectation or the beginnings of a new expectation that if you're caught or at least caught in a very public way, that this can be the result. And I think you're right about the wheels coming off because of the PRI, because although that individual, Pemex director Jorge Diaz Serrano, had developed many enemies internal to the PRI, it's never good um, for someone to have such a, a precipitous fall in that way. Um, and I should note that he wasn't imprisoned until um, President Lopez Portillo left office. But it's it's always a risk to the political system as a whole because um, an individual who's kind of exercised from the party can bring others down with them. No, so um, the the fact that he was brought down in that spectacular manner um, was was risky, and and it did happen because of leaks a steady drumbeat of leaks from within the oil monopoly um, of other officials who, who saw what was happening. And essentially one of the things that Diaz Serrano had done was he had lied about reserve figures, kind of overestimated them as a way of being able to borrow more um, to um, increase production and things like that. And all of this comes to a head in 1981 when global oil prices crash and then Mexico is left um, with the bill, essentially, because it owes all this money and it no longer has like a high price of oil to offer as an exchange or as collateral. And so um, by, by August of 1982, Mexico is forced to or it decides to default on its debt. And this sends the country into a deeper economic crisis. Um, and one thing that I find in this chapter, and because every chapter I think kind of shows some of the, the tensions or contradictions of this, um, these scandals that come out. Um, so the initial, I would say um, the, the magazines that really exposed these scandals initially um, were coming from the center left and they were really arguing for the state to be a better steward of its resources. They weren't arguing that Mexico shouldn't be reliant on oil. Um, they were arguing that Mexico shouldn't um, kind of commit itself to only exporting to the United States and that it needed to manage its, its resources um, more responsibly and, and use them to, to carry out social redistribution, things like that. But the scandal itself and the downfall of Pemex director Diaz Serrano is taken up by the right and by conservatives to argue um, for the hollowing out of uh, the social safety net and for the liberalization of Mexico's economy because the argument was that, well, clearly um, there's too much corruption, it's rampant, and the state can't be um, trusted to manage its own, to manage these massive resources. And we need to deregulate, um, we need to trim the fat, so to speak. And this becomes 
um, kind of Diaz Serrano's corruption becomes something that conservative politicians hold up as an example of um, of why uh, the heyday of of um, kind of redistributive politics needed to end. Well, and and Pemex and and Serrano become figures that are referenced in, in Mexico as sort of symbols of corruption. And that's equally true of the next chapter, chapter four, the spectacle of impunity. Uh, this chapter really resonated for me here in Minneapolis as it covers the, the life and fall of a particularly brutal police chief in Mexico City, Arturo Durazo. Um, could you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what is the spectacle of impunity that, that marked Durazo and how does it eventually become a little bit less impunity for him? Sure. Yeah, so chapter four takes up a very iconic scandal, I would say. Um, Arturo Durazo, as you mentioned, was um, chief of police in Mexico during the um, presidency of Lopez Portillo. He had been a childhood friend of Lopez Portillo, which is how he um, was given that position. So between between 1976 and 1982. And by the end of the chapter, he is embroiled in drug trafficking, embezzlement, and even murder. Now he isn't charged with all of these crimes, but these are all crimes that become alleged in the press. Um, and Durazo becomes really emblematic, both within the press and within popular culture more generally, of how um, politicians in Mexico get away with um, that they how they essentially sack the economy, um, harm ordinary people, and then. Um, get rich and and get away with it. So he becomes a lightning rod for a lot of criticisms and mounting frustrations, um, not only with um, the economic crisis, which is raging at this time, but also with police who were notoriously hated by um, urban residents in general, and especially in Mexico City. And many people alleged that um, abuses by transit cops, um, as well as by more high profile, um, like spies and um, detectives became really even worse during this um, presidency and during this term by Durazo. So initially, um, investigative media really take up Durazo's crimes. They focus, um, they accuse him of being involved in uh, the homicide of 12 individuals um, who were part of like a bank robbing gang in 1982 who were caught by police, tortured to find the location of their stash and then killed um, allegedly in the moment when um, one of them basically died from the torture. Um, And this was linked back to a special investigative unit that was helmed by Durazo. Um, But interestingly, this doesn't really become the scandal that, gains really widespread um, opprobrium, which um, was part of what really interested me about this case. It was really his exorbitant spending and also his sexual life and these kind of everyday abuses that um, Mexico City residents suffered that becomes the subject of scandal. So what happens is um, a tell-all book comes out by his bodyguard in 1983. It becomes an instant bestseller and it different scenes and different tidbits from this book become take or get taken up by comic books and by films and circulate widely. Um, And it becomes this 
it becomes a huge spectacle. Um, and I'll get into a bit what they said, but first I want to note that Durazo, um, he goes into exile or self-exiles himself. He's eventually located by Interpol in 1984 in Puerto Rico. They extradite him to, or they send him to LA and he's eventually extradited to Mexico where he's um, convicted and imprisoned um, on charges of arms trading and embezzlement. Um, but even after he's arrested in 1984, comic books and in particular become um, very popular for how they portray different aspects of Durazo's corruption. And um, among other things, he famously had this massive house in um, over the Bay of Zihuatanejo in southwestern Mexico um, that was modeled on the Parthenon and had Hellenic pillars and sculptures. And he had another house in the south of Mexico that he used police resources to construct. And it had, you know, a discotheque modeled off of Studio 54 and a racetrack and all of that. And these comic books portrayed, um, kind of delighted in portraying this exorbitant um, wealth and also in particular gave racialized criticisms of how Durazo wasn't deserving of this type of wealth, that he was an imposter, not only because of his corruption, but also because of the presumed color of his skin. He was darker skinned um, and he was given the nickname of El Negro. And um, even though he wasn't, as far as I know, um, he didn't have any Afro um, Mexican background. This was a nickname, uh, a very racialized nickname, obviously, that um, at times was used, um, I would say, in a, within families in an affectionate way, and other times um, used more um, negatively. But I would say no matter what is rooted in a white supremacist idea of um, or hierarchy of, of skin color. So um, a lot of these, this coverage of Durazo focuses on his dark skin, um, focuses also on his sexuality. So either his impotence, you know, there would be scenes where he's um, kind of bossed around or humiliated by his wife or also alternatively depicting him as hypersexual where he's depicted as raping women, like beautiful white women in, in different scenes. Um, so I really analyze these because I think it, it, it shows this interesting tension where on the one hand, um, you know, public opinion really demanded that Durazo be um, punished for, for what he had done. And he did go to jail, though not for his, he did go to prison, though um, he didn't serve the full sentence. Um, but this coverage continued despite his imprisonment, um, or at least his arrest. And um, I think it, become, it became an escape valve for a lot of frustrations in society in general. And um, the language of that criticism in many ways became a racialized language. Um, so part of what I try to show is that um, these, these scandals, though they could force some degree of accountability, could also reinforce in many ways discriminatory ideas about who was deserving of holding office um, or who was deserving of, uh, of wealth and success in Mexico. And all of that is not to say that Durazo um, was not, you know, responsible for really terrible crimes, which I believe he was. 
but that um, kind of the way in which those art, those critiques become articulated really relied on kind of deep-seated um, discrimination to, to be articulated. I, I really appreciate the way that this book and, and the way that you engage with the idea that merely being reported on is not necessarily a win for democracy, that, that the way that you report on something could actually also be um, important or problematic. And, and you engage with that in this book in particular. It, we can't really get into it in a podcast format, but through these wonderfully annotated and described um, cartoons, political cartoons and graffiti um, that, that you describe throughout the text. Um, so I encourage people to, to buy the book or read the book so that way they can they can see all those wonderful things that we can't really talk about on this format. Um, yeah, mentioning that. Looking to the next chapter, a mediated disaster. Um, this is about the media coverage of the 1985 earthquake in Mexico city, um, which, you know, I, I considered at one point drafting this asking you, could you explain a little bit about the 1985 earthquake? But that that's probably a whole podcast unto itself. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about how press coverage and, and public discussion about the significance of this major earthquake um, mediated the events and, and public perceptions of them? Sure. Um, yeah. In brief, the 1985 earthquake was in Mexico City was very devastating, both to the physical infrastructure of the city and also in terms of its human cost. And um, it became an iconic a disaster for the city. And I think part of part of what I try to do in this chapter is show that um, there's there's no doubt that that this was an unmitigated disaster, but that it didn't necessarily have to have the political costs that it did and that the scandal didn't have to take on the particular um, crit- criticism that it did. And in fact, um, even by this point, state officials and government officials, actually became part of, of, of um, scandal culture in the sense that they jumped on board on um, spreading particular scandals or stories as a means of deflecting other ones. But um, the, the main focus of a lot of um, media coverage was that this was obviously a very strong earthquake, but that the cost wouldn't have been as high. The human cost wouldn't have been as high weren't it for abusive and unregulated labor conditions and unregulated or um, corruption within the construction industry. Because actually there were regulations in the construction industry, but what we saw in this case was that um, contractors would pay a bribe in order to skirt um, particular regulations. They'd use cheaper materials. So these famously um, modern buildings that had been constructed at mid-century to house the middle classes and serve as a symbol of kind of the state's or the government's um, protection of them end up toppling um, quite easily. But um, so this becomes kind of the focus of, of a lot of that criticism. And just there's a lot in the chapter, but but one thing that um, one case that I focus on is of the survivors of collapsed um, sweatshops. So some of the most visible victims of of state corruption in this um, in this after this event were the survivors of collapsed um, sweatshops. These were 
clandestinely located in unmarked buildings just south of the, the city center. Um, they were uh, they were kind of the prominent um, manufacturing units of um, the textile industry in Mexico, um, worked predominantly by um, women and girls who were not paid the proper wages, weren't given labor protections, um, weren't told that they belonged to an official union and there, therefore weren't able to get access to the labor protections that they were owed. And they become very sympathetic. Um, they become very sympathetic figures for um, the, the image of who was a victim of, of government corruption. So on the one hand, or most prominently, they were, many of them were young, they were women or girls. Um, so they fit very easily into this narrative of um, state patronage. And in fact, even the Pri's newspaper tried to bandwagon onto this scandal and blame um, supposedly foreign owners, because these were factories um, or sweatshops that were primarily owned by Jewish and Lebanese Mexican owners. So um, the government officials tried to blame it on private interests. Um, and there becomes this kind of conflict over how to represent these victims to the point where um, the, many of the women who had been employed in sweatshops and were um, organizing outside of their sweatshops to make demands um, began refusing to even speak to, to television reporters because they didn't like how, how they were being represented. So this is another example of how um, not all coverage kind of can be equated to providing accountability or representation. In the end, um, these individuals did gain an independent union, um, like one of the first of its kind, and um, they did gain some labor protections as a result of this coverage. Um, but part of what I try to show in this chapter is how scandals really brought these contests over public space and representation into sharp relief. And this is also something we really saw in the chronicles that came out. I think if anyone um, is familiar with Mexican history, they're probably familiar with the chronicles of Elena Poniatowska, um, which famously depicted day after day um, the, the kind of personal experience of loss in the earthquake. And I think part of what's interesting and important about her work is that it moved away from focusing on official sources and even these kind of high level machinations of official corruption to focusing on um, kind of the individual and interpersonal way in which this corruption manifested itself, bringing in voices of um, indigenous individuals, um, women and other people whose voices just conventionally were not part of, of the way that crises were narrated. Um, so all of this becomes a really important part of how, um, scandal brings out this, this conflict into over public space and how to represent disaster. I am so glad that you, that of all the things, cause there's so many things to talk about in this chapter of all the things that you focused in on these, um, garment workers, because I was, I was specifically going to ask about the, the stories of them, um, hiding from journalists rather than being reported on. So I'm so glad that you covered that. Um, we're, the next chapter is about a very different sort of people who try and utilize scandal for a political way. The conservative party in the far north of Mexico in the state of Chihuahua, especially for a contested or, or rigged election in 1986 for governor. 
Um, could you tell us a little bit about the significance of this election and why it was so divisive, um, especially because this is one of the first chapters where foreign press um, really become major actors in, in the uh, chapter's events? Sure. Yeah. So chapter six focuses on the 1986 gubernatorial election. This is where the, the conservative Partido Acción Nacional or the PAN party was um, anticipated to win. And it was significant because the PRI had been gradually losing ground in municipal elections in the north um, over the previous decade in the 80s. And But this was the first time that it was really slated or projected to lose an executive seat um, of, of a state election or a gubernatorial election. So it was projected to be, um, you know, a sign of, of the PRI's waning power. Um, and the press plays a really big role in creating this expectation too, both international and national. Internationally, um, U.S. news in particular took a really big interest in this election. The PBS um, aired and produced this documentary really highlighting, spotlighting the um, candidate for the Pons candidate, really presenting him as a scion of democracy, um, someone who is going to clean up Mexican politics. Um, the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, really um, flagship journals in the United States, or not journals, are, uh, newspapers in the United States are really framing this election as a turning point. Um, as a as a um, as something that will show whether the PRI is really capable of reform, and likewise the national press in Mexico, particularly the center, um, I could say actually both the the oppositional press from both the left and the right are really framing this as a potential watershed moment, even before the election take, took place. And the question was really, is the PRI going to use fraud, even though there's so much attention on it? What happens, of course, is that there was widespread fraud. Um, and because there was so much attention, there was also a lot of evidence of this fraud um, and a lot of eyewitness accounts, et cetera. So um, in many cases, you know, you can think about if you think about this, this case, it seems pretty cut and dried, like the PRI commits fraud. It, it steals an election from a legitimate opposition party, um, therefore, like, you know, coverage is likely to be critical of the PRI on this, these grounds. But what becomes very controversial for journalists on the left is who was really behind the scandal. So that's why the chapter title is called The Weaponization of Scandal. This is really one of the first moments I see in the press where there's a widespread discussion of um, scandal as being weaponized by different groups for um for Ill, Ill purposes, right? And this to me is interesting because the question wasn't, is there a legitimate reason for there to be a scandal, which everyone seemed to agree, yes, the pre-committed fraud, that was wrong. There's a legitimate cause for scandal. But um, at bigger issue for many of these left-leaning journalists was who will benefit from this scandal? Um, so they were worried that the United States was behind the ban and that this was evidence of U.S., um, meddling in Mexican affairs um, that, and they kind of use it as almost a rallying cry at this very odd moment, a nationalist rallying cry. Um, if not for the PRI, for Mexican sovereignty, um, and of course the PRI, PRI officials uh, use that to their advantage as well. But I think 
what I find here. Um, and, and, or I should say backing up for a second, like these, this results in a lot of different types of disputes that even, um, take shape on the ground in, in kind of conflicts between journalists who are reporting the same event, or, or I should say correspondents reporting the same event and, uh, readers calling into newsrooms who are angry that, um, newspapers aren't reporting, newspapers in Chihuahua aren't reporting as they should be. And what I find from these conflicts is that um, readers and reporters really, even as the Mexican press is really becoming um, more in, uh, aligned with U.S. journalistic standards and and really invoking them as evidence of its professionalization, um, Reporters and readers are at the same time understanding and showing that they understand the press to be an advocate that couldn't be objective and shouldn't be objective. Um, and this really came uh, became very clear in the case of, of the Chihuahuan elections. Uh, th- this conclusion made me very, uh, very jealous of the sophisticated understanding uh, that, that people seem to have of the press in, in Chihuahua in the 1980s compared to... Um, current discussions about the press and objectivity in the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. Um, Vanessa, thank you so much for your time today. Before we wrap this up, can you tell us what are you working on now or what are you working on next or in the future? Sure. So the next project I'm working on is about the idea of data and information sovereignty in Mexico. So part of um, what I found as I was researching this book, but didn't really have a space to examine it in this particular project, um, was I really think the second half of the 20th century, like so many political conflicts really centered on who could access and control information and data. And we see this taking shape everywhere from um, native reservations and native communities wanting control over their own vital statistics to um third worldist movements trying to, you know, challenge U.S. and and um, Northern Europe, or I should say Western European control over newswire services. So my next project is really thinking about different projects for information sovereignty um, and how they unfolded over the course of the second half of the 20th century. Well, that sounds very interesting, especially with all of the important reverberations and echoes of those discussions as they're going on today as well. Yes, um, I do hope it, it will have that, that <laughs> <laughs> But thank you so much for, for the interview and for reading the book so carefully. Thank you and, and have a good day. Thank you for your time today. You too. Thank you.